when I was 17, I was a diehard lefty. So and I was the person that said, why do you need a weapon of war to go hunting? The next trillion dollar company is a company that can erase you from the internet. Biden's administration has failed us. All of the ideas, they're unfair, they're unjust, and they suck. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Bowtied Commoner's soon-to-be-named podcast. Our first guest is Bowtied Dad, Twitter sensation and freedom fighter. Let's get into it. All righty. So Bowtied Dad, I don't know if I'm going to refer to you as Dad. That'd be a little bit funny, but... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, good morning. So thanks for having me also. I am uh, Bowtied Dad. Um, you can call me dad, you can call me daddy, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> but uh, um, So first, I just kind of have to say this. Um, it shouldn't be a factor, but if anybody figures out who I am, or if I accidentally say my name throughout this podcast, I am not speaking on behalf of the Department of Defense or the Air Force. I am a military member, but I'm not speaking in that capacity. So I just kind of have to throw that disclaimer out there. Yeah, so just to get started, I know being a part of the military is a huge part of your background. So what made you join the military originally? So I, um, I don't really have a whole lot of family that has served. You know, some of the men in my family have served as one enlistment or a half of an enlistment. You know, I've had family members that have gotten kicked out of the military. And uh, so the military was never a thing for me. I grew up... Um, always having a job. You know, I, I worked young. I started, I think, at 12 or 13 doing like odd jobs around my neighborhood and then started working at a fish market. And then I worked at a rental company where, you know, I, I just kind of thought to myself, I was going to be a, you know, laborer, manual laborer kind of person. That's kind of my, my, it was my personality when I was a kid. So that's just what I thought I was going to do. And then I started dating this uh, girl and uh, she, was wanted to be a doctor so she was in pre-med and mm -hmm. she was going to pre-med and studying and just was I mean so consumed by school and she absolutely hated that I was just like this blue collar kind of guy so she was like hey you need to go to school you need to figure something out like I'm not going to be with somebody who's just kind of lounging around and and blue collar type of stuff so I went to school to become an accountant I thought hey numbers can't be that hard it's not that big of a deal um, so I went to community college for two years and realized that accounting was just something that I did not want to do. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I kind of just was like, well, what am I going to do now? So I grew up in a small town, probably maybe 10,000 people or less, um, fairly small school, maybe 120 in my graduating class. So I just kind of wanted to get out of town. So I went to the recruiter's office at the air force, um, cause I had heard through some people that you know, all the military branches are similar. You know, they all have a rank structure. They all have a hierarchy. They all have different jobs. But what separates the Air Force apart is that when you're not at work, the Air Force tends to treat you a little bit better. So they give you a little bit better creature comforts. They give you a little bit better flexibility. They treat you a little bit more like an adult. So I went to the recruiter at the Air Force. I said, hey, man, I'm looking to join. Don't really care what I do. Don't really know what I want. You know, what do you, what do you got for me? And he said, well, you look pretty tall and you look pretty big. He's like, why don't you do me a favor and step on the scale? So um, at the time they had like pretty strict height and weight requirements. And uh, I was, you know, I played sports in high school, but after high school, I just kind of 
gave up, you know, mm-hmm. I just let myself go. So I gained a bunch of weight. So I stepped on the scale and I was like 280 pounds mm-hmm. and I had to be two and I had to be 220 pounds to join. So the recruiter was like, Hey man, you like, you gotta be 220. I can maybe like 225, I can put you in a sauna and we can maybe get you there, but really don't come back and talk to me until you're like 225. So I went home and I just, you know, I I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. So I just started grinding. I was, you know, eating like two chicken breasts and a gallon of water a day and just really unhealthy, just crash dieted and lost, you know, because I was only 20 years old. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. And uh, lost a bunch of weight. And I went to the recruiter and he was like, holy cow, you know, I didn't think you would do it. You know, no offense. So then I joined and uh, I went in something called open mechanical, where depending on how you score on your aptitude tests, whether it's like, you know, general studies or, you know, uh, mechanical, things like that, they'll put you in just an open category and whatever they need filled is what they need filled. Mm. So I ended up going, uh, open mechanical and I got selected as it's called a crew chief but it's essentially just a um an aircraft mechanic but like a jack of all trades so you you basically own the aircraft when it's on the ground and then you manage all the maintenance that needs to be done you help troubleshoot service launch and recover and basically you're you're like the go-to guy when the aircraft is on the ground and then you fly with the plane on whatever they do so that's um, called a flying crew chief. So that's what I became. Didn't really know, didn't really care, didn't have any passion at all whatsoever to the Air Force or the maintenance, but I absolutely fell in love with it. Huh. So uh, it was one of those things where I never really knew what I, I didn't know. I never, you know, I didn't know what I wanted. So I was an open book and the Air Force, I just kind of let the Air Force shape me so to speak so um i've been in uh air force special operations for the past 15 years now and i think that's what kind of keeps me keeps me there keeps me um you know with the job satisfaction doing different you know humanitarian missions and deployments things like that a lot of travel a lot of job satisfaction so i think that's what kind of keeps me around you know what i mean totally i I'm interested to know, so they had strict height and weight requirements when you were in the process of recruiting. I wonder how much that has changed. I was listening to Tim Kennedy, I think it was on Joe Rogan, and he was saying they couldn't, a lot of our military recruiters were really struggling to find kids that met the the height and weight requirements. Yeah, so the, the height and weight requirements are still there. I can't exactly speak to how much they've loosened. I know they've I know that they've loosened a little bit, but what what's kind of an unspoken or unadvertised thing is you have to be a certain height and weight to join, and then you have to be a certain height and weight to stay in, but it's a lot harder to kick you out once oh. you once you exceed those standards if you've already gotten in the door. So the military will pretty much bend over backwards to get you where you need to be, and they have all these healthy dieting programs and P extra PT and different things. Um, I mean, yeah, obviously you can get kicked out if you gain too much weight or fail PT tests and fitness requirements, but the, the strictest portion is to get you in the door. And then once they invest in all that training and whatnot, they really try to do what they can to keep you there. That makes a lot of sense. So what Tim was referencing 
you know, is, is a, it's a totally real fact. Um, you know, they're, they're struggling to recruit all across the board and um, all of the services are struggling to recruit. Typically the Air Force, you know, hasn't really had any problems mm-hmm. making their goals because, you know, people see it as like a, Hey, I'm going to join the Air Force and then I don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. Right, you know, that was right. the, that was kind of the stigma. Obviously, it's not true, but that was just kind of the stigma. So people went with it. But uh, everyone's struggling, and I think you know height and weight is a factor. Also, what people don't understand is, you know, as a parent, right? If I take my kid into a counseling session or a therapist and they you know they prescribe them something for anxiety or something for stress management or something like that like that's all now in your records and the Mm -hmm. days of lying to your recruiter because they can't see your medical records those days are over with all the data so the military can see like hey you were 15 and you got prescribed xanax or hey you were you know a 17 year old girl and got diagnosed with an eating disorder you know they they have all that data so it's a lot harder to get quote unquote you know, clean recruits that haven't been through the the medical system, so to speak. Well, I had no idea. So taking any of those drugs as a teenager, which is becoming more and more common, I would say a lot of kids in high school were taking prescription drugs like that, or they were getting them not through prescription. So they're taking like Adderall or something like that. Um, Any record of that? Like what drugs keep you out of the military? Is it a one-time so, stint? No, so that's a good question. So it's, and maybe I wasn't a little clear. It's, there's a waiver for almost everything, but the waiver process is long and lengthy. So, you know, for instance, I was diagnosed with ADD. I mean, I was a kid growing up in the nineties. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody had it. I was a boy nonetheless. So right. uh, I had ADD in my records and essentially the Air Force made me, go to the doctor that diagnosed me and essentially say, Hey doc, like, did you, do you maybe think that you misdiagnosed me? So I had to go, you know, I was 20 years old. I went, I found the little small town doctor that I had that originally, you know, um, diagnosed me, which once again, if you don't come from a small community, it would be tough to track that doctor down. Right. And then I had to say, Hey, sir, like, are you sure I had ADD? Was there maybe a chance that I was misdiagnosed? I kind of had to give him a little sob story that I wanted to join the military. And so he wrote a letter basically saying, Hey, you know, I think this kid's good. He's, he's good to join. You know, maybe it was a misdiagnosis, something like that. And then that paperwork got submitted all the way up and, you know, X amount of people have to sign off on the chain. So it's the more hurdles that they add for the Zoloft or the Xanax or the, you know, Adderall or Ritalin, the more people who initially maybe want to join as like a knee-jerk reaction the longer they add to the process the it almost disincentivizes those people so they eventually just say you know what it's not worth the wait it's not worth the waivers I'll just go get a job as a construction worker or I'll go to school and take out a student loan or whatever the case may be and then we end up not getting those people so it's not that you can't join but the process to join with having taken those drugs has become so difficult that it's a huge, you know, disincentive. Totally, totally. So in terms of your experience in the military, we've been hearing a lot on the right wing Twitter that Navy SEALs are, you know, 
stopping being a part of the military due to vaccine requirements and things like that. Have you noticed or do you think, can you corroborate that that is true, that there are people that are leaving the military due to cultural changes from the top? So, uh, yes, you know, anecdotally, I've seen I've seen various people not get the vaccine and get out. I've also seen people that have otherwise, you know, served really honorably and enjoyed the military. I've seen them just kind of let their enlistment end and walk out the door. You know, a good uh, uh, kid that I mentored growing up was an awesome dude. Uh, he had that service mindset. He was a great mechanic. He was, he was that, that type A personality. I really wanted him to stay in. I was mentoring him and I was like, Hey dude, this is you know what you can do. This is what you can accomplish. He was making rank really fast. He was burning it up the chain. And eventually when his eight, he, I think he, I think he did eight years almost to the day. And he was like, you know what, man, I'm getting out. Wow. And I'm like, what are you like? Why? You know? And he was like, ah, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not for me. I can't deal with the politics. I can't deal with the, the, the culture shift. And, you know, that, that I was always his mentor. And then he almost became my mentor in that, you know, sharing those thoughts. It was just something that wasn't, I didn't think about, you know, it was just, yeah, it's not that I was going through my service blind, but I was so in tune with politics on the civilian side and just the, you know, red versus blue mm-hmm. kind of piece that I didn't see it in my own, you know, service, I guess you could say. So once he said that, you know, I started kind of focusing inward on like, hey, what do, what do I want to do? Who am I? Do I want to get the vaccine? Do I want to be a part of this culture shift? You know, what's my place in all that? And I came to the conclusion personally for me, I mean, a lot of factors, which I'm sure we'll get into later, but you know, the, the, I guess my kind of thought process was I'm going to try to stick it out and be the change that I want to see. And I know that sounds super cheesy, but when you're a, uh, you know, higher ranking enlisted person, you have a lot of people underneath you and you can really influence organizational change within your small culture. So, you know, at, at some points you'll have 300 to 400 people underneath you. And if you can affect those 400 people in, to me, I feel like that's a win, you know, that's Absolutely. a, that's a, a sizable impact. Now, granted, you're not going to affect the entire 200,000, 300,000 DOD, or, you know, Air Force, but if you can foster a healthy culture in your, you know, 400 man squadron or 400 person squadron, then, you know, I see that as something that's worth sticking it out for. So I guess that, that's kind of where I'm at. But yes, to your point, there, the military has changed. It's uh, the diversity and inclusion thing. Is a, it's a real thing. You know, that, that culture has kind of seeped in. Um, and people are leaving because of that. And I think, you know, Cernovitz mentions it a lot. You know, if, if they lose kind of the quote unquote patriot class. Right. The then, warrior class. Then our, yeah. Then our, then our military is kind of doomed. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what the future holds. I think with a conservative uh, commander in chief or, or a, I guess a, 
when the political tides change the, the military culture, since we're so adaptable, they ch it changes rapidly. You know, when I, I served obviously under President Obama and then President Trump and President Biden, and to see that change when President Trump took over, to see the military shift, it was almost instantaneous. Wow. And then when Biden took over, same, you know, the, the, because generals and politics and everything, you know, everybody's so moldable because that's a huge factor of the military is you need to be able to change at a moment's notice. So I think if it, if the commander in chief changes, then the culture will change also. That's fascinating. I never thought of it that way. I always kind of put it into the administrative state, like one of the existing infrastructures of our country rather than something that is molded by who's in charge in that moment but that makes a lot of sense um something that i think about is that young people it is very in vogue to not like our country so if you're trying to get young people to join the military that's a really heavy ask and i don't see that changing soon unless there's a really big cultural change I would agree. Um, you know, obviously 20 years of global war on terror, it was a pretty solid, you know, recruiting pull right. for folks because, hey, you, you know, you, you thought you were going to fight for something, whether that's right or wrong, whether the endless wars were a net positive or not, it was a way to get people to join, you know, and now that we're in sort of a quasi peacetime state, and the the i i think the next fight is going to be more of a near peer china type of situation versus yeah. iraq afghanistan i think people you know it's that's a big you know people were willing to join when it was like hey we're going to go over to iraq and afghanistan and and we have all the the toys so to speak and they don't a lot of people were willing to join under that kind of imbalance and now when you talk about a China or a Russia situation, that's going to require a whole new force. And I think it's going to require a whole new culture and outlook. And I don't know if people are, you know, have internalized that and then made a decision like, yeah, I would like to participate. You know, I don't think I don't think the young folks that are wanting to join or or, or the, the demographic that we want to join. I don't know if they've internalized that yet and figured out whether they want to raise their hand or not. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Because the demographic that you would want to join is that warrior class and that warrior class feels disenchanted by the current political regime. So why would they go fight for someone that is not, you know, protecting their rights, protecting their country and is even disparaging their country all the time? Like it, the demographic you want is not going to be happy with the current regime. Why would you go fight? That's really the question I have. Yeah, there's there's a lot of factors there. There's, you know, and I can't speak to everyone's individual motivations, but there's a factor of economic, you know, the gig economy is a is a fairly new thing. And mm -hmm. when you can drive for Uber or you can, you know, do DoorDash and you can make it through and get a decent living or maybe you can work from home for uh, you know, I'm going to plug Bowtie Cyber, but if you can, you know, take his class and put your hoodie on and make 80K, you're working remote. I mean, these, the kids these days, the young folks are not stupid. I'm right. not saying they were ever stupid, but there is a more clear path to economic upward mobility. I know people want to say, oh man, this is the worst that's ever been. But I mean, you can literally pick up a laptop 
and and make a career out of that. There's yeah. there's freaking kids who open up toys and they're making millions of dollars by totally. reviewing toys that come in the mail. So, you know, it's a tough it's a tough prospect to get those kids to to get out of high school and join up when they see the influencer culture being so successful. That's something that we didn't really have to fight back in the day. You didn't really have to recruit kids in spite of that. Yeah. I, it's just a really big problem. I have a feeling coming in the next it is. few decades. It is. There's a lot of facets that haven't been, um, you know, a lot of hurdles that haven't had to been jumped over. And now we're trying to, I say we, but, you know, the military or, you know, upper level leadership is trying to figure out how do we, how do we incentivize people to join? How do we leverage some of these, you know, technological advancements or, you know, how do we speak the language of the younger generation to get them to want to serve? And that's been a challenge. This may be too far out, but let's say that there is the worst happens and we do have a conflict with China or Russia. Um, do you foresee a draft as a potential necessity? Personally, personally, I don't. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know if you watch uh, Tim Pool, for instance. Mm -hmm. Tim Pool talks a lot about fifth generation warfare and how the game has kind of changed. And I don't know if this massive scale global you know, world war is going to look the same as it did in 1940, you know, or even Korean war in the fifties, Vietnam war in the sixties. You know, I don't think it's going to look the same. I don't think that countries are necessarily going to conquer other countries with boots on the ground. I think it'll be more just like economic um, warfare, so to speak, and informational warfare. I think, you know, we're seeing it on a small scale in Russia and Ukraine for now but even we're seeing that as like I, I don't know about you but i thought russia was just gonna go in and crush the ukraine totally it's not turning out to be that way so i think everyone's soaking in all this data and they're they're figuring out day by day that it, i don't think the next fight is going to look like russia and ukraine i mean who would want it to you know when you can just flip a switch and shut someone off in the banking system you can turn off their internet you can hack into their satellites. There's so many other factors. That's a truly horrifying thought that China could just <laughs> knock out our electric grid whenever they feel like it. Um, well, think about this. So think about this. Like, I mean, you talk about cancel culture, but I mean, what we saw when Russia and Ukraine, if you're a Russian oligarch, your yacht was seized, your credit card was frozen, your entire life was essentially canceled. And uh, now apply that on a massive scale. I think that's the future moving forward. That happened. And then the Canadian trucker protest happened a month before that. And those are the two most clear use cases for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that has ever been shown to the public. And people still did not understand why it was necessary. I agree. I completely agree. I mean, that the fact that they were shutting off the GoFundMe accounts or the, you know, give, send, go and then they were freezing their debit cards and credit cards and and even asking, I mean, I'm sure you saw it, but there was like letters, you know, sternly worded letters to different crypto uh, exchanges to freeze their wallets. Like it was crazy. It was absolutely insane what we saw for the trucker protest. And like you said, people just 
you know, I thought the, I thought people would wake up, but you know, at the end, and, and I think some people did. I'm not going to be totally, you know, doomsday mm-hmm. about it, but but I do think we still have a ways to go. Yeah, the the vaccine portion of it is really important to me. I think the idea that the government can tell you to inject yourself with something that doesn't have evidence that it's going to protect you or protect anyone else and you have to just fold and do as they say i am terrified by that prospect so when i saw the canadian trucker protests it was very striking to me because those canadian truckers were doing more for freedom than any of my republican politicians that are going to try to run for president in the next five years like i'm going to remember who advocated or said nothing against the vaccines when I go to vote. That's going to be a huge thing for me. And I don't think I'm alone in that. No, I don't think you are either. And I think it extends way past vaccines, but it's also, you know, the COVID response in general. I thought the, the, what I saw during the COVID piece was something that I didn't think I would ever see like in my lifetime, you know, and the fact that I still have to put on a mask to go into a hospital, like mm-hmm. why it, it, it literally, the studies have been published, the information's out there. The masks have little at best to zero effectiveness when it's, when you're not actively coughing or sneezing and it's like, but we're still doing it. And I, you know, I talk to people every time I go into the hospital, especially for my daughter, which is like a lot all the time, right. I'll say, hey, you know, when are we going to get done with the masks? And everyone just says, dude, we're never getting done with the mask. And that is hard for me to wrap my head around that we've been able to shift an entire culture and social standard to where it's perfectly acceptable to not see anybody's face during a person-to-person interaction. Like, that's crazy to me. And we've just let it happen and that's that is wild and like you said to your point that's that's scary the idea i kept hearing like kids are resilient they will bounce back from this not being able to see people's faces not going to school and being on zoom for some kids over two years they were on zoom like the idea of taking two years which was 20 percent, 15 percent of these kids lives and for what outcome there was no benefit and they're trying to memory hole it like oh this was a community action event we all needed to come together to do this those kids are going to have those consequences for the rest of their lives and i don't think anyone is discussing it enough in the regime in the in any of our politicians even on the right i don't feel like there's been a lot of politicians saying that the lockdowns were so wrong on so many levels they can never happen again I mean, I don't know. I'm not really up on current events, to be completely honest. I don't really like to engage with it, but I don't know. What so I think I think the problem and why you don't see any of it on the right. And and what we have to remember is this new political landscape is a political landscape to which everything that you've ever said has, is recorded and is immediately searchable by an AI driven search engine and you can buy products and search every podcast every youtube video every speech so if if there was anybody on the right that was going to come out now and say something about lockdowns 
there would be a million clips right behind that to where they were like, yeah, two weeks to sell the spread. We got to, we got to, we got to get after it. We got to all do our part because let's be honest, 99% of people were doing that. Yeah. When it first happened, everyone was so quick to get on board. And then the two weeks went by, four weeks went by, six, eight, 10, 12, you know, and people just, you know, they didn't come out against it quick enough. And I think that's the problem is people say like, well, people probably think, well, I can't come out against it now because I'm going to look like a hypocrite because you can pull up 20 clips of me doing, you know, saying that you need to get vaccinated. So unless we had a whole new, you know, unknown political kind of uh, candidate or political party or a, a movement, you know, all that data is there. So you'd almost have to start grassroots and just build it up from there. But in the two-party structure, that's tough to do. Yeah. I would have more respect for a politician that said, hey, I made the wrong decision when this first happened and we need to pr- make sure this never happens again for you any are, reason. You are beyond correct about that. And I think that's what politicians are blind to. I think that's that's a huge blind spot for them is that Americans like a rebound story. They totally. like a, uh, arc of, hey, I made a mistake and I'm going to fix it and it won't happen again and I'm going to come back, you know, 10 times better than before. We like that, that stuff. That's how we were born and built and embrace that as a politician and Americans will get behind you. But now the new the new politics of the day is I will never admit to being wrong. And that's one of the biggest critiques I have of President Trump. Yeah. Or, you know, former President Trump. It's really interesting that you say that because with this cancel culture, I feel as though I can't come out and say something. I can't take a stand or have an opinion unless I am absolutely 100% sure that my opinion won't change. And what would be way more beneficial for discussion is to say, this is what I think today based on all of the facts and all the things that I've read, but I could still be wrong And if I were to have my opinion be changed, I'm not losing. I'm being open to new ideas. I'm becoming a more informed individual. But you can't, there's no moldability there. There's no flexibility. Once you say like anything, you are, that's who you are forever now, which is so counterproductive. Right. And it it stunts human growth. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, when you can't grow past what you did in high school or college or, you know, you're you know Paris flag in your Facebook profile like if you can't grow past those moments then we're doomed if we don't allow people to grow people will just play that cut of you saying yeah I support xyz and they'll just play it on repeat and repeat and repeat and not allow you to grow and that's that's a really bad way to go about society I agree Yeah, my friend was saying, like, when we have Supreme Court hearings for our generation, you know, with the Kavanaugh hearings, they were trying to remember a party 30 years ago. Like, we have Snapchat memories of every party that you've ever been at or of every stupid thing you've ever done. There is a video of it now. Exactly. A hundred percent. So I don't know how anyone's going to get elected. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, we talk about future what the future looks like and the future is going to look the next trillion dollar company is a company that can erase you from the internet to give you a fresh start and i don't know if that's possible (laughs) but if as soon as that gap in the market gets filled people are coming in hard because if i can buy my membership to you know 
dataerase.com or whatever and get everything I've ever said that's wrong off the internet, I'm signing up for that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think because the, at the end of the day, if you have to be 35 to run, you know, let's just say AOC, for instance, mm-hmm. she's going to be 35 soon. Her entire life has been chronicled on the internet. Right. We have stupid dances from AOC. We have, you know, college bartending clips of AOC. So the next few presidencies and all politicians for that matter is going to be chronicled digitally online for the whole world to see and it's nobody's perfect so i don't know who we get to run so maybe that changes the culture because now everybody has those clips of everyone then now we say people are allowed to recover from past mistakes or allowed to be a stupid 20 year old kid like they can grow and still be a good leader 15 20 years later yeah, I, I hope that's where our culture goes. And I pray that we give grace to humans as a whole to to recover. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I had a John Kerry poster above my school locker at school, like back in the day. I'm, oh, like, my goodness. I was, I was a Democrat. I, I won't tell anyone. Better. I was worry. 17, you know, 16, 17. And I, I thought it was cool to be against my parents. My parents were conservatives. Right. And I was like, this has got to be the way to just fight the man. And I knocked on doors, you know. Oh, my goodness. And not not for like John Kerry. But let's, <laughs> like I had, a, you know, my, my mom knew a, a Democrat that was running in the city for, I forget what, whether it was like county commissioner or something like that. And uh, yeah, I went around and passed out pamphlets and stuff. And then, you know, I grew up and I realized the world isn't, isn't uh, fair. And obviously my politics have shifted significantly since then, but I have to be allowed to, to grow past that and to graduate from that or else, you know, I'm just going to be relegated to 17 year old kid. And that's, that's not a world that anybody wants to live in, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. When I was 17, I was a diehard lefty. So things okay, can change so pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love to tell this story because it's so interesting. What happened was, uh, I like to say that I became conservative in 10 minutes because I was in high school when the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting happened, the one where 17 kids were killed. And of course, it was a huge deal for us in high school as students. And we were having a discussion about it in one of my classes And my teacher showed like the town hall that was the Stoneman Douglas kids versus the NRA lady, Dana, Dana Roche or Dana. Yeah, it was that discussion. And I thought it was very interesting. And so I went home and on YouTube and I kept watching similar debates on the subject that I had never heard an opposing view before. Keep in mind, we had a gun debate in class and I was the person that said, why do you need a weapon of war to go hunting? Now I think about, wow, that is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. But that was exactly what I said because I was just repeating, you know, sound bites I'd heard or read on Twitter. And I went home and I was watching debates and suddenly Ben Shapiro debates showed up and Candace Owen debates showed up. And that would never happen now because the algorithm wouldn't let it happen. But Candace Owens said something like it was a question of police brutality. And she said only 16 black unarmed men were shot by police in 2016. And I was like, okay, this lady is full of crap, right? I've seen them on CNN every day. There's no way 
only 16 black men were shot by police, unarmed black men. And then right. I was like, okay, I'll call her bluff. And so I went on to the Department of Justice website or the Bureau of Justice, and I found the number and it said 16 in black and white and boom. I was like, they're lying to me. They're lying to me about this. Santa Claus isn't real. The Easter Bunny isn't real. I'm like, if they're lying to me about this, this is all the stuff they've taught me. Guarantee it's a lie. And then I went through everything and it was like a mind blown, like the emoji of the explosion in the brain. And I was just sitting in my room. And I was like, holy mother of God. That's that's how I became conservative in 10 minutes. <laughs> so what gave you, so it's one thing to be conservative, right? But then yeah. it's another thing to be, outwardly conservative so what gave you the courage or or i guess the the motivation or the gumption to be like you know what not only am i conservative but i'm going to actually contribute to the system and try to you know spread the truth or pull people into my ideology or what 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 made you go that route well growing up i am the most rule follower straight a like straight laced person ever. And so my idea was I study really hard. I get good grades and they're going to prepare me to do well in the world. And then I find out they've been using my rule following, my kindness, my, you know, willingness to agree with authority against me by lying to me. That flipped the script. Okay. My whole life I've been taught, you know, if you listen in class and you do what you're told, you will be prepared to be a fully informed citizen and you can go make your way in the world. That's not the case if you're lying to me every single day I'm sitting in a classroom for public school for the past 17 years. And so then sure. I have like a chip on my shoulder now. I'm like, hold on. there are Because when you see these kids protesting in the streets, when you see girls, you know, with signs about Roe versus Wade, those are not rebels. Those are straight A students. If you're listening to Jordan Peterson, like the agreeableness scale, those are the most agreeable yes. kids. Yes. And so they're not For being sure. told any opposite side of a uh, point of view. But not only are they not getting told, but they're getting like love bombed by the left totally. to where the, to where they can't even imagine a world where a the algorithm gives them the opposing side. B they're less agreeable because of X Y Z, and then C their community doesn't just accept them with open arms because conservatives, you know, that's one thing I will say is we're kind of like pretty critical of each totally. other you know and everybody you know it's like oh jordan peterson had a, a you know a, an addiction problem and therefore we're, i'm just never going to listen to another word this man has to say like it's tough because we're individualistic naturally as conservatives and uh that's kind of bitten us in the ass in my opinion because we can't organize collectively like the left can yeah i mean the personal responsibility piece of it that gives you, it seems to give people um, an excuse to be more critical of other people's choices when it should be, as we were talking about earlier, you're allowed to grow as a person from your mistakes. But we miss that on the conservative point of view, which I think is why a lot of young women, um, they stay on the left, even if they begin to realize that, oh, wow, some of the decisions I made weren't the best for me. They weren't the best for others. But if I try to switch over, I'm going to get judged or they're not going to accept me for that. Right, right. I think that's that's a pretty accurate assessment, in my opinion. Now, I would I I would hope, and or I guess I think that for women, and I don't want to speak for women, obviously, but maybe you can corroborate. 
as you get closer to motherhood or wait, maybe even when you become a mother, you're like, okay, wait a minute. Like society no longer just impacts me. It also impacts my children. And do you think that that has kind of shifted women to be more conservative as they get older and have children? Or is it just kind of still incentivized to stay on the left? I, I would hope that it incentivizes them to shift to the right, but I have seen too many soccer moms that use their kids as virtue signaling on the left. You know, sure. to, I just, I would hope that their desire for a better society for their kids outweighs their desire to look good on Facebook, but I am not optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be optimistic. I just, I don't know. That's me. That's my personal you know, outlook. I hope someday that we can get to a point to where your child's, you know, I don't know, they're, they're, you're not using them as a, a backdrop for your social justice movement or X, Y, Z. I just, I hope we can get to that point, but you know, maybe you're right and <laughs> we're not going to get there, but I got to have a little bit of faith. Yeah. I'm not known for being optimistic, but you know, one of my many faults um, is <laughs> something I will say though is um, I think the white soccer mom is the boss level of identity politics. I think it's the final boss in that you kind of have to fight identity politics with identity politics. Like you need Dave Rubin as a gay man to speak to the gay community and say, we don't all have to be liberals. You need Candace Owens to go talk to black people and say, you don't all have to be Democrats because that's what they believe. So the only way that you can really get talk to them is someone from their group because they're so entrenched in that idea of identity politics. The last level is the white woman who can't bear to look like she doesn't, she's not empathetic or that she doesn't have the virtue and is not with the liberal ideology. And so if you were to break that mold a little bit, especially for young white women, um, that would have political ramifications that would echo throughout the country. That would be a huge breakthrough. It's that is a phenomenal take, by the way. I just want to give you that kudos there. I think, um, you know, I, me as a male, and uh, I, I can't really say what I think the final political boss is because I just don't, you know, I don't think in terms like that. But I think you're absolutely correct in that it it takes somebody to break the mold. The, the Dave Rubens, the Candace Owens, the Thomas Souls, the right. you know the but I'm trying to think of who is doing it on the right that's like a young white female. And I just like, like, um, gosh, what's the lady's name? She's on Fox Nation. Is She's it like Tommy this... Lauren? Yeah, yeah. Tom, like, so cringe. <laughs> so cringe. I'm like, Tommy, come on. Like, <laughs> she's just not getting it done for me, as personally, as far as to be that the boss fight between the the white left liberal soccer mom and then the white white right you know young woman or whatever so i don't know who that person is maybe it's going to be you someday maybe it's <laughs> a commoner but uh it's got to happen because you're right when when we can't when you cannot call someone out for having bad character no matter what the color of their skin or their political leanings or their gender if you can't just say listen people we have a character issue, a culture issue in this country. If you can't say that from all sides, from all demographics, 
then like you said, there's always just going to be that one final boss that we can't defeat. Yeah. I mean, as a white woman that just came out of college to, especially when I was taking my like political theory elective classes to come from a conservative point of view, when we're discussing things like racial equity and social justice and to come with the conservative point of view that I think everyone should be treated equally. That's like throwing a bomb in that classroom. Nobody could believe that a white girl would say that and surrounded by people of all different skin tones. Do you think that you, did you see any like reprisal from that? Like, do you think your grades were affected or anything like that? Oh, not in that class. Cause that professor was based. <laughs> okay. So he, he was loving there. it. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't really care from a professor's or like a grade point of view. I would be more concerned about like a social conditioning point of view. Like, wow, I cannot believe she said that. I've had conversations with girls who used to be my friend who we disagreed on this point and I wasn't going to fold. I wasn't going to say, you know, I think there's systemic racism in our police state. I'm not going to say that. I don't believe it. It's not in the facts. It's on the data. And they could not believe that I said that. Like, really? You don't think that the lived experience of a black man is different than a white man when it comes to policing? You can't believe that? Yeah, that, that, that that basic belief part is so important and if you can break through that like the masks people thought it in their brain it was impossible that the masks didn't work like they couldn't they couldn't wrap their head around it so if you can't wrap your head around certain things like you know police uh, you know justice or the numbers the the crime statistics or the data on unarmed shootings or whatever the case may be if you just simply can't wrap your head around like some things are just not they, they defy common sense uh, if you if you can't wrap your head around that then you, you you lose and you can't grow and you can't you know evolve then yeah, if you tough. can't agree on a fact base how are you ever well, going that's, to come to a conclusion that's the new politics too is we're not going to agree on simple things like the skies or like you know like uh, taxes, for instance, you know, you do, you do some economic segments and I'm by no means a, an economic theorist, but lower taxes, if you look at the data, results in more revenue generated by the federal government. So it's like, well, yeah, but so if you make it just a blanket statement to say lower taxes results in more federal money. People will say, no, that's not true. The rich aren't paying their fair share or yada, 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 or these other million talking points. But then, like you said, we get to a point to where we can't agree on basic facts. And that's where we're at. The distance between reality and the facts that you see on something like TikTok now is even worse than when I was in high school. Because I see all the time these videos, they're like, if Jeff Bezos didn't take a salary for one year, he could pay every one of his employees, $100,000 or something like that, you know, right, or right. It, he could solve world hunger. I'm like, okay, if Jeff Bezos could do it with 5 billion, why can't we do it with our $1.3 trillion budget? You know what I mean? It's just not based in reality. And if you can't agree on the facts, then you can't, there's no conclusion to come to. There's no, and I think that's on purpose. I think the denial of facts the encouragement to deny facts from the data perspective is on purpose from the left, because then you have uh, the morality police is on your side. So it doesn't matter what people say. You are right. 
No, I, I think you're absolutely correct with that statement. I think it's it's by design that nobody can agree on anything. Because I mean, you can take it out of politics completely. You can go online and research any topic. For instance, fitness. You can, carbs are bad, carbs are the worst, carbs are the best. Carbs are energy, <laughs> you know, fat is horrible, seed oil, like any single thing that is out there, you can find a hundred websites for and a hundred websites against anything. And I think that's by design. I, I agree. Yeah. But I think in your, to, to your point that what's going to rise to the top and, and even full circle coming back to the jungle, what rises to the top is, you know, fact-based, data-driven, experience-driven information. And people are just distilling their lives down to who do I want to consume? What do I want to consume that is going to make me better as a person? And I think that's like the, the next level of the human experience is to just fine-tune your algorithm or your content consumption to things that are going to improve you. I mean, if you Let's just say you wanted to go out right now. I, t I tell people like this, if they're overweight, you know, cause we talked about, you know, I had to overcome a lot of weight to join, you know, I had to lose a lot. So I kind of have a, a foot in that route, that world. I know how I got fat. I know how the decisions that I made led to that. And then what I did to fix that. But nowadays, if you wanted to, to lose some weight, you could take a month and completely reconfigure your algorithm to only see videos of transformations, weightlifting, success stories. If you did that and only liked those and only clicked on those videos, you would change your feed. And that's never been possible before. And so that's, that's a powerful tool that if you use it correctly, you can really be successful. And I think that's what the jungle is doing right. I think the idea of tuning your algorithm to what is best for you long term is so valuable because we're consuming media all day long especially young people like you're on tiktok you're on youtube you're on twitter all day long if the stuff you are forcing yourself to look at is only going to be beneficial to you like you're looking at jungle twitter rather than god knows what else twitter's out there that is going to have fundamental changes to how you live your life every single day. I'm a really big believer in like habits. I think who you are is who you are on average every day. And so if you are forcing yourself to only look at stuff or to only read stuff that is going to make you better rather than stupid TikToks of people dancing or like, you know, walking up to people on the street, like, how'd you make your money? <laughs> All those ones that go viral. <laughs> it's going to have so, like ramifications so far in advance but kids are not doing that right now. So it's not yeah, interesting enough. I guess it's the, the winning strategy is A, how do you make it interesting? But then B, you have to constantly, you know, and I, I, I talk about this in some of my content is like, how do you mold your kids mm -hmm. to want to, how do you mold your kids to embrace delayed gratification which is completely against their current brain structure and you know neurological pathways children are children for a reason they are still growing they're still developing but how do you tap into that brain and explain to them in terms that they can understand 
delayed gratification and discipline. And I, in my opinion, this is my, this is, you know, me, Bowtie Dad, the only way to do that into a simple enough form for a child to understand is to live it and to model it and to do it by example. That's the only way to do it. You can't, the, the words aren't going to do it. They can read the children's books, aren't going to do it. You have to model the behavior that you want in your children. So that's what I try to do. And I'm going to hope and pray that it works at the end of the day. Um, I certainly wasn't shown how to do it by my father. Um, you know, my mother is an absolute rock star. So she gave me, you know, more than enough to look and model after. But now it's my turn and my job and my duty to do that for my kids. So that's that's kind of my outlook. I couldn't agree more that delayed gratification is one of the most important things to learn, especially when it's so easy to be gratified right now. Like for kids, you can go on their iPad and play games all day long. They can watch any video. There's no boredom whatsoever. My mom was a huge advocate for boredom <laughs> because she thought it would make you do something more interesting, more creative, read a book, you know. So she, we were never on screens as kids. Like she was really intense about it like if we went to a play date no screens she was in charge that kind of thing um, oh yeah for sure yeah I totally agree with that and it's but, tough as I get older I imagine well you know I, I think it's tough because you have to balance you know my, my oldest is 10 so mm. I'm not you know I'm not like a a teenager dad but I, I'm getting into the preteen phase and I'll tell you what it's females are on a whole nother level <laughs> when they get to that age watching my daughter and my wife interact is it's like it is a glimpse into a world that i had just never seen before oh it's so and fun it is a it is a whole nother place that i didn't really i don't even want to be in that world but i have to be obviously because you have to take an active role but to watch these two females interact with each other is scary to me because they're just like it's it's like a primal like buds against each other and that's it's just crazy uh, and you know everyone tells me like oh it's just a phase and, and it is you know I'm hoping that obviously everything will be great and wonderful at the end of the day and I know you know a lot of women look up to their mothers and they end up you know really respecting them later on in life and and I hope and pray that that's how it goes for us but we you just got to stay with kids man it's you have to stay on the grind. You have to stay in the game. You cannot give up because if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. And once they take a mile, they take five miles. And once they're too far gone, you can't pull them back. So you have to stay with it. It's, it's like the eternal long game that never stops. Absolutely. I, my understanding is that if you're really strict with them as they're young, that makes your job very much easier a decade or two down the road. That's, you know, that's what I've seen. And that's kind of my experience. Um, you have to, you know, I guess strict is, is a really broad term. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I try to let my kids be independent thinkers. I try to give them, like, if we're having a discussion or whatever, and I, you can tell when a child like really wants to get something off their chest, or they have a different side of the story that maybe you just didn't see at the time. And I always try to look at myself and pause myself and say, all right, like what's going on? Instead of just kind of going off the handle as a parent. But if you let them tell their side of the story and you really listen to it and you kind of determine if you've done the work up until that point, nine times out of 10, they're going to give you the, 
the honest answer. If you let them have the time to like initially, oh, I want to lie about it, but then I know I shouldn't lie because I know my dad or my mom has taught me about integrity and they'll eventually work it out, but you have to give them that opportunity. And to see your child go through that, you know, that cycle and then to come out of the other side of, you know, telling you the truth or admitting that they did something wrong. And then you ask them like, well, what do you think your punishment should be? And they give you like a reasonable answer. You're like, wow, this is huge. You know, that's a win, but you just have to take that win, kind of put it in your pocket and just know that that process, whatever you did to get you to that point is what you have to continue to do. I mean, that sounds wonderful to me. I'm not quite a parent <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah, you will be. You will be. <laughs> One day. Um, I'm definitely learning from everybody in the jungle on this topic, watching closely as Heifer starts to get closer to the baby date. Really excited for that. Um, yeah, that'll be awesome to see. I think, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be following that closely for sure. You know, and the parenting thing is there's, it's, it's, I wouldn't even say it's like a niche, you know, everyone's like, Hey, what's your niche? I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, I, <laughs> I, I you know, I, I don't know, but I guess, you know, everyone has their idea of what's good parenting and this or that. And you know, there's really no even way to prove, it, you know, you, but I got to think that if, the parents, so to speak, keep contributing to the jungle and the, the younger folks like you. And I don't know if you know Bowtie Robin. He's a younger kid. Oh, I yeah. He's about Me 20. and Robin go way back. <laughs> you know, so I think that the next kind of class is going to, like you said, you know, their, their feed is going to be full of this and, and eventually it's going to be a net positive. That's that's my belief anyways. Yeah, maybe you can talk about when So you went viral, viral on twitter <laughs> yes do you want to discuss or let the people know what that was like um that was i guess really kind of why what caused all this i, I didn't really have a, a motivation for for doing my thing you know i wanted to be i saw the bowtie piece i wanted to be in in the jungle i wanted to contribute but i wasn't I was just doing me, you know, I didn't really have any purpose or any plan or any, you know, any uh, goals and aspirations of what I wanted to do. And then I just put a random t tweet out there, essentially saying something to the effect of, you know, hey, I have a really special needs daughter that's, you know, severely disabled. She, she might never walk. She might never talk. I could drown myself in alcohol every single night and just hate my life but instead I choose to go to the gym and I choose to improve myself and get strong and be the person that I want to be and the person that she needs in order to you know I said carry her up the stairs but really it's more important than that it's carry her through life and yeah. carry my family through life and you know you have to be in the right frame of mind in order to take that challenge on and I just try to stay in that frame of mind so it got picked up, obviously, it, I don't even know how it, but I, I got to attribute it to the jungle. They just kind of picked it up. They retweeted it. I'm, I don't know who all did, but it was incredible. And, you know, tens of thousands of likes. And then all of a sudden, um, another like parody account or whatever uh, dudes posting W's or something mm -hmm. like that picked it up. They retweeted it. Then it just exploded from there, uh, hundreds of 
hundred and something thousand likes. And I was just like, I mean, my phone literally didn't stop. I can imagine notifications for like four or five days straight. And I went from having, you know, 250 followers to like 3000 followers almost overnight. And that was weird to me. That was, that was extremely weird to me. And then once I realized like, you know, you know, part of me was like, Oh, it's sympathy for my kid or, you know, it's, it's uh, just, they're doing, you know, they're following me because of this one tweet, you know, what am I going to do now? And that was kind of what kind of set this emotion of maybe I have to be more deliberate. Maybe I do have something to share. Maybe I do have a, a knowledge base that I can kind of put out there and, and benefit other people through this Twitter thing. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, I was just scrolling through Twitter and I follow dudes posting W's just normally. And I don't always look at like the original account that posted it. So I didn't, I just saw that tweet and I liked it or I might have even retweeted it, but I didn't even realize it was someone from the jungle. Like I just saw it in like my normal <laughs> right. browsing, which is pretty incredible. Um, the, the reach of the jungle is growing daily like it's really spreading it's like ox gets up to like forty thousand, and sales guy gets up to thirty five thousand. like it's going to be an engine here for real growth if people buy in i do i i think so too i i don't know where i fall into that at this quite at this moment i would you know i like to kind of continue to share my story with with people like you and people that you know have an interest um i definitely need to be I need to stay on this path and really deliberately create and I, my, I'm I'm tossing around some subsect stuff in my mind and kind of figuring out how I want to do things but you know it's tough because you know if you go the parenting route everybody has an opinion they're just like assholes yeah. you know everybody has one so then if you go the special needs parent route it's like well that's super niche and then, you know, the, the military piece is something that it's like, yeah, that's a part of my life. That's a huge part of my life. But at the same time, I don't, I don't, I live in that world every day. I don't want to live in that world when I'm not at work, you know? And uh, so, so I'm, that's where I, that's kind of where I'm at right now as far yeah. as uh, my path forward. But Yeah, picking, narrowing down on a niche was really difficult for me because I didn't want to talk about one thing over and over and over again. I thought I would get bored. So like Fawn is all about skin and she talks about skin all day long. Luckily, it's like a very, you can get really deep with it, like with the chemistry, with all the different products. She can make her own products. Like it's really fulfilling for her. But for me, if I just wanted to talk about monetary policy all day long, because that's my background, um, I would get really bored. So the way that I tried to frame it was my niche, niche, whatever, is the way I look at problems. So the ability to take math and numbers and to analyze something interesting and then make it funny, you know, that's my secret sauce. So maybe you can take it like your perspective is what's interesting and you can broaden your subject matter a little bit, um, potentially would be an idea no definitely definitely i i i think that your content is right up my alley and that's why when you said something about hey you know does anybody want to just chat i immediately reached out because i'm like she's a she's funny 
B, you're more the, you know, politics, economical side, you know, monetary policy, that kind of stuff is interesting to me. And uh, I just thought it would be, you know, nice to come on and, and chat and see what your kind of story is. And I had no idea that you, you know, went made a left to right transition, obviously, just like myself. And I just, I think you're doing great stuff. I think your content is awesome. I laugh when I, you know, the, the uh, Tinder breakdown was, it was a great angle, you know, it was a great angle. And that kind of stuff is, I, I think is going to do well. Thank you. So I really appreciate work, it. I guess. Yeah, and for sure. For those listening, this is my first interview podcast. So BTD is the inaugural episode and he will live in infamy forever because of it. Ah, nice, nice, <laughs> nice. Um, I noticed you liked the the Katie from HR one too. Yeah, I yeah, I love that one. That one was awesome. <laughs> that was so the funny story behind that video was I wanted to do one about some of those affirmative action cases and I wanted to do a Thomas Sowell bit. So I put it together in like that debunking diversity. But then the week before I had a problem with my HR department at work. So then it kind of morphed into a diatribe against fictional Katie from HR. So that's nice. I nice. love that. <laughs> um, I get to really be, I like being in charge with the, the creativity, which is something I don't get at work, of course. So what do you do for work? If you don't mind me asking. So I do like analytics. So I'm in Excel all day. Sometimes it's a different program and I'm just solving whatever problem comes up kind of thing. So. Okay. Yeah. Is it for like a, like a pretty large company or is it just small Giant startup company. or what is it? Okay. okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of bureaucracy and um, the problem was my vaccine status. We haven't even kind of dove into the, my, my family makeup and my daughter and things like that but when I've been in the military for a long time right and the military provides me health care they provide me security they provide me a paycheck but then it also provides me you know this is what I want to do I want to continue to serve and like we talked about earlier I want to make an impact in the places that I'm at and the military is a great way to do that so when they said hey you got to take the vaccine I'm like listen I've been in long enough I know that when the military tells you to do something, even if it's the wrong thing, the military has an almost 100% track record of not going back on decisions mm. that they make. So That's it didn't it. take a rocket scientist to understand this was not going anywhere. And especially mm. since it was President Biden's like first six months in office, there was, I knew in my mind, there was three and a half years minimum for this process to flesh out. And if I thought that the military had a chance, any chance of rescinding the mandate, I would have held off. But, uh, and maybe I'll be wrong and I hope that I'm wrong, but I didn't think it was gonna happen. I still don't think it's gonna happen. It will not happen unless there's a new administration. And even with the new administration, I don't know if it's gonna happen because of the, the bureaucratic state, so to speak. And, uh, so I took the vaccine, you know, I, I didn't want to take it. Um, I wasn't a, you know, I wasn't the first in line with my fist in the air and posting a selfie on Facebook. You know, I wasn't doing that, but I just, I kind of did in silence and I knew this was something that I was going to have to do. And in order for my daughter who requires an immense amount of medical resources, in order for her to have uninterrupted care, 
I had to get the vaccine and that's a shitty situation, but it is what it is. And, and I have to own that, you know, and we talk about growing as a person and if it ends up being that they rescinded and it turns out that you could have just rode the waiver train and, and eventually got out of it, you know, I'll have to live with that. But I felt at the time with all the factors I had to take it. Yeah. And I mean, your position is a lot different than my position. I have no responsibilities. I don't like, I could get another job. I could go to a different school. Like I am the person designed to be the resistance here. (laughs) Sure. Sure. I think that if you, if I had children and my job that I love was dependent on this, my decision would have been a lot different. Also would have been different because you're a little bit older and the you already had children. So my biggest concern was issues with fertility because I saw that there were, you know, just some things with women's cycles and things like that. And I just didn't want to mess with that whatsoever. So that was my biggest issue with it. Um, So I think there's definitely a different, you know, perspective there, but no doubt in terms of, you know, a new administration comes in and changes things. Let's talk new administration. What do you think <laughs> is going to happen in 2024? Let's start with the Republican side of things. Is Trump running? Trump, I, oh, gosh, <laughs> you're trying to get me on record on the inaugural <laughs> podcast of the Bowtie Commoner podcast. <laughs> and, and can we talk about the midterms first? Okay, let's talk midterms. That's fair. All right. So 2022, I think, I think Republicans take the House and maybe the Senate by one or two seats. I think Fetterman is a joke in yeah. Pennsylvania. I think finally people are seeing like this guy's, I mean, bless his heart. He had some health issues, had a stroke. He's not cognitively there. I think people are learning from President Biden that cog- cognition is important. And I think Fetterman's going to lose that race. Um, which I think will give the Republicans an edge in the Senate. Um, I think we'll take the House also. With those two things, if those happen, I, this is so spicy. (laughs) I haven't even had a chance to like really think through this. But I think if Republicans take the House and the Senate, I don't think Trump wins. Or I mean runs, excuse me. Okay. And the reason I say that is because it will be much easier for a, you know, more uh, like a DeSantis or somebody to run if the Republicans already have the House and the Senate. Now, if Trump is running as the complete and utter, like, throw a grenade into the China shop and blow up the establishment, which is really how he won in 2016, uh, if if we don't take the House and Senate and those are still controlled, you know, slightly by the left or, you know, 50, 50 Senate, something like that, then Trump will almost be, ha- he'll almost be forced to run because of the, the grenade factor. But if it's a little more stable and a little more, you know, solidified to the conservative side, I think somebody like DeSantis would run in that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just makes, kind of thought about that. That live, was a so. far more detailed and elegant description of events than I was, <laughs> that I had. Um, I think, I don't know if he's going to run. I don't know. I don't want do him you, to, of course, but I don't know what he's going to do. Well, now, okay, I got to ask, what's, what's like, your, give me like your three minute Trump, you know, analysis. 
Oh. Like, do you think he's good for the party, bad for the party? Do you think it was a mistake? Do you think, like, give me that. I do not think it was a mistake. I think he served his purpose in 2016, absolutely. I think I loved what he ran on in 2016. I don't think he came through on all of those promises or in all of those, um, what he said he was going to do. Do I want him to run again? No, I love DeSantis. I would much prefer DeSantis to run instead of him because if he were to run the whole thing again becomes about trump rather than the ideas which have failed us like biden's administration has failed us all of the ideas they're unfair they're unjust and they suck that's you know and if they have trump they can pivot into trump's mean don't vote for the mean guy which is a lie a lot of women my age do not vote for trump they're like how could you possibly vote for trump did you see what he said about women did you see what he said about mexicans um, you can't do that as much with DeSantis because he's so much more elegant with his words. In terms of his successes in office with Trump, you know, the free trade and the China trade war, I have really conflicting ideas about because the libertarian free market economist in me says free trade is good. People specialize in their comparative advantage. We get more stuff. Consumption goes up, more surplus. But a very select group of people get hit on from all sides all the time when you do free trade like that and mainly being blue collar manufacturing base in the United States. And those communities have been destroyed. And then you think about the opioid epidemic on top of that. I don't think the total surplus that is gained from free trade outweighs those costs. So I appreciated his uh, trade stance against China. Yeah. Well, I think the, so that's a fair point. And I think the, um, you know, comparative advantage piece is true, but I didn't, I don't think it factors in China's just theft of intellectual property. Totally. You know, when you assume a free market, you also kind of assume, you know, uh, a fair market and the fair meaning that, you know, people are on the same playing field or that everyone's IP is their IP you know, whether it's copyrights, private property ownership, resource management, whatever the case may be, China is a huge, you know, flip in that script to where they have, you know, the government backing, then they have the ability to completely steal intellectual property, and then pass that stolen IP out to the world. And it's just consumed by every everyone to include us. So it's, it's not really apples to apples. And I, I liked how Trump kind of summarized that. And and did something about it i think it's easy to just say yeah fair trade you know fair trade fair trade right. but it's a different world that we live in you know so we got to figure out how to how to win in that world also you know yeah i totally agree with that and sitting in my you know econ classes either like a freshman or sophomore when this was happening my professor came out and said like 99% of economists that's stupid saying you know 99% of scientists 99% of economists um that free trade is better for everyone. And I remember thinking, this is not a fair assessment of this topic. Um, but while I was making that China financial crisis video, I was really diving into their situation. And it makes me less concerned for potential conflict with China because they are seriously screwed. I don't know how they're going to come out of that. What's going so on? school me up, school yeah. me up so I can form an opinion. I've heard, you know, the 
replacement rates are obviously garbage. I've heard that their population is only going to age and that's going to be, they're going to be sick. And then I've heard that their housing crisis has collapsed, or I mean, their housing market is collapsing and their equity market. So school me up, yeah. give me the down and dirty. So I would say that the most important thing that's happening right now is that housing crisis. So basically what was happening is that it was a Ponzi scheme. So, so people would pay for housing developments as they were being built. So they would have to pay mortgages on houses they don't even live in. And then what the developers okay. would do is they would take that money and they would use it as collateral to go get more debt from a bank to build another housing project, right? Because that's cheaper cost of capital right. to get it from people's funds rather than getting another more debt from the bank than they needed to. Um, right. So then they go start building another housing project. They didn't finish the original housing project though. So there's all these half-built housing projects around China right now. And the people are rioting because they're like, we're paying mortgages and you're not even continuing construction on the house I'm supposed to live in in six months. It's So that's crazy in and of itself. They also approve loans up to 40 times your annual income. So in the United <laughs> States, you can get a housing, you can get a mortgage like five times your income max. If you make 50 grand, you can maybe get approved for a $250,000 house. In China, if you made 50 grand, you could get approved for like a $1.2 million house, like completely asinine. Wow. And then- I think we yeah. learned in 2008 how that worked. Exactly. It's, and so people are completely underwater on their mortgages. Home ownership is culturally so important to them it's a sign of status and it's like an embarrassment to their family if they were not to own their home. So 90% of people own houses and have mortgages in China, which is much less than in the United, which is much more than in the United States. So people don't rent. They have to get into a house and get a mortgage. So the demand is really strong, even if prices are crazy, even if, you know, supply is half finished houses, they'll pay for it. So basically wow. a bunch of people, many of the citizens are saying, we are doing a deposit moratorium. Like we're not paying these mortgages to the developers, right? Because they're saying, you need to start building our houses before we start paying you again. And so they want to take their right. money out of the bank because their deposits in the bank are being used to pay the developers because the banks are supporting the developers as well. So they want to take their money out of the banks, but that whole fractional reserve banking thing is happening. So the deposits aren't actually in the bank. So there's both a bank right. run and a mortgage moratorium happening. The banks are all invested in the housing developments that are now going to be worth 25% less than what they were worth last year. So there's just all of these compounding factors that are just horrible. So then you know what's going to happen. The government is going to print more money to fund the developers to finish the projects, which is... Right ridiculous because you're going to inflate the currency it's just bailing them right. out again it doesn't incentivize them to do anything better and the common man is going to get hit even more and then what's the common peasant to do like they can't they have no mobility they can't go anywhere they can't do anything so it's just it's a tough spot and i mean revolution i think the prospect of real revolution is getting more bleak you know as time goes on you know we talked about the trucker protest we mm -hmm. talked about you know some of the you know obviously like 
the the time and place to water the tree of liberty so to speak is like <laughs> it's just it's going it's it's only getting smaller those windows of opportunity so for the chinese to stand up and, and truly revolt and overthrow the ccp that would be a really tough task i think at this point Absolutely. And I mean, with the surveillance state that they have, they have records of everyone's face, they're constantly monitoring them, they have the social credit program, they have a potential CBDC or central bank digital currency rolling out, like the the end of freedom for China is, is very close from what limited freedom that they have, in my opinion. And that's only what we know, like, who knows the information that's not getting out to us, totally. you know what I mean? And they can lock them down. There, I believe part of China is locked down right now from a quote unquote COVID outbreak. And right. if you're like, they're watching you, you cannot leave your house. Your social credit score will be docked if you leave your house when you're not supposed to. You need it. That'll, that needs to be your next video is the China social credit score. Yeah, video. that's a really good idea. Um, what it incentivizes, what it You could make that funny. <laughs> you could totally make that funny. <laughs> totally. And then if you add in the CBDC layer to that, if you're not supposed to leave your house, your social credit score gets docked and your currency gets docked. You lose 500 yuan every time you do something the government doesn't want you to do because they have full control. Your account is with the central government. It's not with a private bank. So they can delete and add as they see fit. Yeah, I, I listened to a, a video of Glenn Beck this was a while ago about basically what he said is his opinion was that the U.S. would try to bail out this sky high inflation with a CBDC. And basically mm -hmm. what he said, what it amounted to was that, you know, right now the petrodollar, whatever you want to call it, right. You know, it's, it's used as the global, you know, reserve currency, but it's still, the actual physical cash really can only be spent in the United States, you know, India, China, whatever, Europe, they're not getting dollar bills and then going to whatever, using those dollar bills in cash. So what he was saying is basically when, when they, if, if they were to do the CBDC in America, that as they convert from, you know, US dollar to DUSD or whatever the case may be, that you would essentially get a percentage, like let's say you're Elon Musk and you have 500 billion. Well, when you convert, you only get 350 billion. And you're like, wait a minute, like I lost 150 billion, but they're like, yeah, but your purchasing power is so much stronger because we've just erased mm. this 15% equation. Does that make sense? Yes. So that his prediction was that is how they were gonna choke the supply and kill this inflation would be to convert to the cbdc now i thought that was interesting to me from a totally just not finance nerd perspective like it, it sounded viable i guess because i don't know how you get this inflation under control currently because i mean people just eventually they just can't afford to participate in the economy right. and when you can't participate <laughs> in the economy you, you know that slows the rate of inflation, but to actually erase that 15%, 10%, you know, a lot of people say, well, they just said it was 8%. It's really double that, you know, so let's just say it's 16%. How do you erase that? You just slow the growth. You don't erase the actual inflation. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Um, in terms of the CBC rollout where they 
So the purpose of monetary policy is to influence the supply of money. So that's why they shift the interest rates around to change the interloan, the interbank loan federal funds rate, which changes the supply of money. So if they were to roll out a CBDC, it becomes much easier for the Federal Reserve to affect the supply of money because they can literally just cut it in half, right? Okay, so, okay. So the idea is that it's more efficient, more targeted monetary policy um, than the current very complicated system that there is now with reserves and changing the federal funds rate. Um, in terms of rolling that out to combat inflation, that seems like a Trojan horse to me. The idea of having your bank is now with a CBDC, your account is in the Fed. So you only have Fed CBDC notes that are only redeemable for CBDC notes, right? Right. It's backed by nothing. They can create, right. they can destroy, they can add, right. they can take it. Like it's so much power to that central bank. And it basically would eliminate the private banking system because you don't True. need to have private money anymore, which used to be like a competitive factor to central bank reserves right. um, in terms of a store of value. But you're talking about the petrodollar. I was doing some research for another video about our world reserve currency status. And there is a large portion of B-team companies, uh, uh, B-team countries. So BRICS, so it's like Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They don't want the U.S. to be the world reserve currency anymore because of the inflation that we're basically exporting to them. Mm -hmm. So if we were to lose reserve currency status, in addition to the inflation that we are witnessing now, it would be... Inc very dire because then there would be no demand for dollars so the supply right. of dollars strengthens and the inflation worsens right so that is a huge issue that i don't think is being discussed enough um and they've they've been having meetings about it that BRICS committee like fairly recently um so i would i would hope that would get a little bit more media attention yeah i need to dig down more on the BRICS thing i've heard of it uh, obviously i'm familiar with the the incentive there for them to have their you know whatever currency they de decide to be the reserve currency but mm -hmm. i mean this russia thing it's a huge i mean if you stop buying if you start buying russian oil in you know chinese yuan or the ruble or whatever you know that further uh weakens the dollar and then it's just a downward spiral if more and more countries you know jump in on that so it's i mean we're living through some craziness I i'm not much older than you but um I think we're both kind of living through some crazy times. If if I had to I make an assessment, I completely you know? agree with you. And I would, during my um, years at college, I would argue with one of my favorite professors. He was my monetary theory professor about crypto, and I would be like, "But the threat of inflation, like crypto, is so necessary to combat inflation. So you have somewhere you can sock your money away. Like that is something people should have the right to do. They shouldn't have to lose five or six percent of their value every year just by holding on to it like what if you want to save for a house what if you want to start a business like the value is very important to be able to save it and he said you know two percent inflation annually is nothing people can anticipate that they can make decisions like okay inflation will be two percent every year i can allocate optimally knowing that is the case you come to right. this year with the inflation at eight percent month over month and looking like it could go it could go, get worse here if they don't figure something out that's a and big difference from two percent two week low 
Sorry. Like the, I said, and the S and P at a fifty-two week low. Exactly. So the There's nowhere crack. to put your so money. So you would literally, right? And real estate is about to be garbage. I mean, <laughs> Bull talks about it all the time. Real estate is about to be just, I mean, a nightmare. I'm lucky. I'm sitting on a two percent mortgage. No oh, big deal. Jealous. I'll be the, you know, I'll be. A, <laughs> but that's not to say that things won't get spicy once the common person with their five hundred dollar home is now at seven percent interest with a home that's now worth 300k and yep. they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel it's a recipe for civil unrest in my opinion i completely agree and it's the natural consequence of having people control the supply of fiat currency if you had something that was non-manipulatable you would not get into these situations where it's just compounding on top of each other like the snowball is growing if you had and the, the argument for fiat currency is that, well, in times of recession, we can't respond. And Thomas Sowell would say, well, we responded just fine by doing nothing for all of history prior to 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created. So mm -hmm. somehow we recovered. Each of those little recessions were worse, potentially. Like, But the investment went where it needed to go rather than ballooning into these giant bubbles of fake money that are right. you can't you can't put that back in a box no no and you can't once you reduce people's quality of life and then sell it to them as hey we're just kind of reducing inflation and putting this this genie back in the bottle people don't like that totally so, yeah no doubt so i got a question what you know you talked about crypto i am like listen <laughs> i am completely call me illiterate to crypto and now I, I get it obviously the blockchain it's immutable smart contracts you know I, I dabble a little bit here and there but what is your opinion on the current state of cryptocurrency you know like DeFi, ponzi scheme uh triple yield DeFi. like <laughs> give it to me you know <laughs> triple yield okay let's start we'll do we'll do you laugh but it's we'll true do... Ethereum, and then we'll go DeFi. Bitcoin, the use case for Bitcoin is still the same. Like if you liked Bitcoin three years ago, you'll like it today way more because it's a hedge that the whole thing comes collapsing down the financial system, right? Like sure. the way that you really win with Bitcoin is when people need Bitcoin to conduct transactions. And so that is becoming more likely as each day passes. So my use case or investment thesis supporting Bitcoin is A plus, still love it. Ethereum post merge. I have oh, not smart. done. Yeah, I have not done <laughs> the research I should have done um, on post merge Ethereum, but everyone I trust is telling me it's really centralized and it's not as good as it used to be. Um, can I speak more on that than that baseline? No, probably should read a bit more on that. And then in terms of DeFi, I think eventually all of our financial transactions will happen on a blockchain. I think bankers will be replaced with lines of code, like those common things you hear, um, because it's more efficient and all of that type of thing. But the presence of people, there's a lack of knowledge on the investor side, and there's a knowledge that there's a lack of knowledge on the blockchain developer side. So there's an incentive to make stuff that is not good and sell it to people who don't know what they're talking about. Sure. right now in DeFi. So that's my concern there. But if you find good projects and you can really audit them yourself and understand what's going on and the incentives behind it, 
I still think there is money to be made in cryptocurrency. But again, as Bull would say, we're not here to look for the next 20x. We're here to build income streams on our own and then put it somewhere safe, which I think is Bitcoin. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, I think Bitcoin, you know, the use case, obviously, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. And now this is total layman. I'm a 35-year-old dad. Like, I don't have too much time to dive into crypto. But I think smart contracts are going to be huge. I think the the quote-unquote middleman of marriage licensing, real estate licensing, you know, I'll take, for instance, I like to go hunting. You know, to go to a store to buy a hunting license is this huge process when I should just be able to go online, type in my, you know, digital ID number or whatever, hit the transaction on a blockchain and get a transaction confirmation saying I have a license now to hunt, which... I mean, we can go into why you shouldn't need to hunt, but that's a whole different story. But yeah, so smart contracts, I think, are there. And I think there's a huge use case for smart contracts, whether it's remittance payments or, you know, lending, small time lending, things like that. But just, I hope, my hope is that we can somehow move past, like, the, the perception of it all being a Ponzi scheme without the government's heavy hand of regulation. But I just don't see that right now, currently, as a layman in the space. Yeah, I completely relate to that. Um, I think the smart contracts is the most useful part of crypto in terms of economic transactions, exactly as you described. I think NFTs, like your marriage license, your house um, agreement, your house lease, whatever it is, um, those will all be NFTs, your birth certificate, an NFT. You don't need the physical copy anymore. It's on the blockchain. It's immutable. That kind of thing is an increase in efficiency um, that I definitely think will happen. Um, I think I agree with everything else you just said. Regulation, though, is going to be the tough part. I think a great business to be in is blockchain law in the next decade, understanding like what is no happening doubt. you can make a lot of money as a lawyer doing that i don't know do you follow any other blockchains besides ethereum and btc like cardano for instance um everyone i trust hates cardano <laughs> and then <laughs> they like stacks though so like the the l2 on top of bitcoin sdx sure. they're the idea is being that you have sound money and then you have the DeFi capability on top of that so that now that Ethereum is more centralized based on what people I trust have told me, um, then I'm leading towards Stacks. But then some people say Stacks is a shitcoin. So it is still very confusing. All I know for sure yeah, is they, I love Bitcoin. That's enough. <laughs> I think the I think the space is you know it's 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 still in its infancy. You know, BTC yeah. is however many years old, but it's still and its infancy and for people to understand you i mean we're literally dealing with the whole new way to operate the basic human nature which is value and exchange and markets and freedom i mean we're we're really literally trying to reinvent this wheel in real time on a computer in a trustless system like is it's a lot for people to wrap their head around it's a lot for me to wrap my head around and uh so i i definitely get people's you know reluctancy but I think if, like you said, if you can, if you can maximize revenue streams and then, you know, whittle or navigate your way through this crypto space, I think there's some money to be made also. And then I also think that there's some real 
you know, good to be done from this, this new theory of crypto. I totally agree with you. And with that, I think maybe we should call it because I unfortunately have a meeting for my day job soon. So, (laughs) but it was so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Yeah, definitely. Thanks again for having me. Like I said, I, I appreciate it. Um, I'll let you get to your meeting, but if anybody's listening, you know, I had a great time and thanks for, you know, taking your time out to listen to our conversation. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Bowtied Dad. That's at Bowtied Dad on Twitter. And that's really the only thing I have going right now and possible subsec in the future. So I appreciate it. And hopefully uh, you'll have me on again. Yeah, I would love to. This has been so much fun. And make sure you guys All follow right. him on Twitter. And I will see you guys in my next video. Bye.